This week, we want to prepare our hearts for next weekend, prepare our hearts for Christmas and Christmas Eve coming up. So with that in mind, I want you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 68 through 79 in our time together this morning. And while you're turning there, I just want to give you a heads up on what next weekend looks like, prepare you for our time together celebrating Christmas and Christ's birth. We will be having two services next weekend. Uh, the first will occur on Saturday afternoon, Christmas Eve at 3 p.m., and the other will occur Christmas morning, Sunday morning at 9 a.m. Those will be the same service. It'll be a celebration of Christ's birth and a Christmas service. If you'd like to join us for both, we'd love to have you join us for both. You never know what might be a little bit different from one to the other uh, in my message, uh, but we'd love to have you for both, or we'd love to have you join us for one or the other, depending on your family situation. I also would encourage you, as you consider that weekend and the opportunity that stands before us of remembering Christ's birth, to invite a friend to those services. Invite someone that doesn't know Jesus, give them the opportunity to hear the gospel preached and the message of Christ coming. Christmas is a great time, and people are more receptive to that, so I'd encourage you to do so. Uh, if you have a friend or someone you'd like to introduce to Jesus, we'd love to meet them next weekend. We've already sung the words a couple of times here in our time together this morning from O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, but I want to reread them. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. I don't know about you, but this is one of my favorite Christmas songs. Every year we sing these incredible lyrics, but I can't help but think that we often miss the haunting and mournful tone in our Christmas spirit and enthusiasm for the holidays. Yet these words perfectly capture the desperation and desire that God's people felt generation after generation after generation as they cried for their long-awaited Savior. O come, O come, Emmanuel. God's people have always been a waiting people, clear from the beginning. I think of Adam and Eve sitting outside the garden, watching the effects of their sin ravage God's world, waiting for God's promised snake crusher. Or Jacobed placing her son Moses in the basket, watching the evil of Pharaoh's oppression on the people of Israel, waiting for a deliverer who would rescue them from Egypt. Or the Old Testament prophet Isaiah pleading for the people to repent, watching the people rebel against God and waiting for the arrival of God's promised suffering servant. Or the prophet Jeremiah, mourning Israel's destruction, looking at the destruction of Jerusalem, watching the remnant in exile in Babylon, and waiting for the arrival of God's promised righteous branch of David. And so, so many more. For thousands of years, God's people, always watching, always waiting, always crying out for the Messiah to come. Now imagine with me for a moment, put your feet in the sandals of Zechariah. Imagine for a moment that after all that time, after all that waiting, after all that expectation, God comes to you and says, he's coming. The Messiah is on his way. What would you say? How would you respond in that moment? Luke 1 tells us the story of how Zechariah responded. 
God comes to him and he says, you will have a son. You're to name him John and he'll prepare the way for the Messiah. And Zechariah goes, I'm not sure I understand how that works. As a result, he's struck mute for his disbelief. And then Mary is visited by the angel Gabriel and told that she will carry Jesus, the the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Finally, at the end of chapter 1, John is born, and Zechariah's speech miraculously returns to him. And our passage here this morning includes the first recorded words of Zechariah after his speech comes back. After thousands of years waiting for the Messiah to come, after being told that his son would prepare the way, what will Zechariah say? Let's read it together. Luke chapter 1, verses 68 through 79. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give us light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's pray. Lord, as we prepare our hearts for this season, as we prepare our minds to recall and remember what you've done for us, I pray that this morning would be a time of worship, that we would celebrate, that we would rejoice what you've done for us, but it would also be a time of remembering, a time where we remember the history and everything that went before leading up to this moment when you would send your son as one of us, as a baby in a manger. Lord, it's so easy to gloss over the Christmas season. And we pray that as we study your word, as we look to Zachariah's words here in Luke's gospel, they would use it to shape and to mold our minds, that you would use it to prepare our hearts, that you would use it to help us see Christ for who he is and to worship him for who he is. Lord, use this time together. Use my words. Be in our minds and in our hearts so that we would see and we would hear and we would know you more. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you may be familiar with this text. It traditionally has been known as the Benedictus, which in Latin means praise or blessed. And that's because the first words of Zechariah's song of rejoicing here start with, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. This term, blessed, means granted goodness. It's the same word that we get the idea of benediction from, which is why it's called benedictus, the idea of rejoicing or celebrating. And this term is either the idea of having received blessing from God or responding to God by giving him praise. And so I like the NIV's translation here when it says, praise be the Lord God of Israel. 
Everything that follows after from Zechariah here is a song of worship, a song of praise and celebration for who God is and what he's done, for the promises he's made in the past, and for fulfilling and keeping those promises in the birth of Christ. And so Zechariah praises God for three promises, for three fulfilled promises here in the first few verses. First, he praises God for visiting and redeeming his people. Look at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. After thousands of years of waiting for this long-expected Messiah, Zechariah celebrates that God has come. God has visited. He celebrates that God's presence is coming to earth, that God's arrival has been announced, and that he has come to redeem, to rescue, to purchase back a people for himself. Kind of makes us think of the story of the Exodus, does it not? God's people languishing in Egypt under slavery and persecution, and God says, I'm going to send Moses, and oh, by the way, Moses, I'm going to go with you. My presence and my power will bring them out of Egypt, and I will rescue them and bring them to the land I've promised. And while that event may have been in Zechariah's mind, he clearly has something more in mind here. Because this whole song is inspired by his son John's birth. And so he looks at these realities, and I want us to note something really interesting here. He says, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He speaks in the past tense of what is a yet future reality. It isn't until chapter 2 that we read of the birth of Christ, and we'll cover that a little bit more next week. But it's worth noting here that Zechariah views God's past promises as a guaranteed reality of the fulfillment of those promises. And he looks back at this first promise that God has promised to visit his people and to rescue them. And he holds on to this promise and he says, God, you will be faithful. You will be faithful to visit and to rescue your people. And I think of the words of, O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, O come, thou Lord of might, who to your tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times once gave the law in cloud and majesty and awe. It says that God will visit us that God has come to redeem us. But Zechariah continues his praise. And in addition to looking back to this promise of God's visitation and redemption, he says, God, we praise you for having raised up a horn of salvation. Look at verses 69 through 71. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And we go, horn of salvation? What is he talking about here? Now, he's not talking about a musical instrument. Okay, there's plenty of talk about musical instruments here. What he's referring to is an animal horn. This is strange for us. We're not part of an agrarian culture. But this idea of a horn of salvation would have come from animal and livestock terminology. When you're raising animals for a living, you're used to the impending look of a bull or ram with large horns staring you down in the pasture. And they would have been used to this. They would have been used to the, the fear and the concern of looking at a bull about to charge them with horns. 
And that came on to take on this imagery of power, this imagery of victory, this imagery of might. And so when he says here, you have raised up a horn of salvation, he is describing a conquering king. He is describing the fact that God has raised up one who will come to conquer. And where does this horn come from? Well, look, he says, in the house of his servant, David. In the house of his servant, David. This is a fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 17. I encourage you to read it this afternoon if you're unfamiliar, but we probably know the story. David, the second king of Israel, has been given a firm reign over the land of Israel. He's been given rest from the enemies on all sides. He's gone out and he's conquered all of God's enemies. And he sits there and he says, Lord, I am sitting in a house of cedar. My house looks far more impressive than the tabernacle that you reside in. And so he says, Lord, I will offer to build you a temple. God says, no, David, I don't want you to build me a temple. I'll let your son build that temple. You've shed too much blood. However, in response to your faithfulness, I will build you a house. I will build you a dynasty so that you will never lack one to sit on the throne of Israel. But the rest of 2 Samuel and the book of 1 and the book of 2 Kings detail the failure and ultimate fall of this Davidic dynasty. David's sons as kings who rebel against God and are ultimately destroyed and sent into exile. And it begs the question, when will this son of David come? When will this conquering king be sent? The one who's been prophesied about in the prophets, right? Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, this king was promised by the prophets. We think of Jeremiah 23, verse 5, that says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And this king will ultimately rescue his people. Verse 71 describes that. And we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. This king would bring liberation and victory. Zechariah, in addition to looking back and saying, God, you have promised to visit your people and to redeem them, he says, oh, and God, you have promised to send a conquering Davidic king. In the words of the songwriter, oh, come thou king of David, come. And open wide our heavenly home, make safe for us the heavenward road, and bar the way to death's abode. But Zechariah has one final praise, one final promise of God to look back to. And he praises God for displaying his mercy in verses 72 through 75. First, he remembers God's covenant love. Look at verse 72. To show the mercy promised to our fathers... And to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. He goes back and he looks even farther back than the Davidic king and he looks back to the Abrahamic covenant. That's detailed in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, Genesis 17 and the fulfillment in Isaac in Genesis 22. The promise that in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He says, God, you have promised. Remember your covenant love. Remember your covenant 
faithfulness and display your saving love. Look at verse 74 and 75. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. It says this one you will send, this promise you have made to give deliverance to your people is to result in our holy, fearless, lifelong service. And the New Testament author Paul looks at this reality in Galatians 3 and says this, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Zechariah looks back and he says, God, you have promised to visit your people and redeem them. God, you have promised to send a conquering Davidic king. And God, you have promised to send a merciful Savior. Again, the songwriter. O come, O branch of Jesse's stem, unto your own and rescue them. From depths of hell your people save and give them victory over the grave. And from there, looking back to these three promises, Zechariah then shifts from talking about what God has promised to what God has done, how he has kept his promise. And ironically, in this song of praise at the birth of his son, this is the first time that John comes up. I don't know about you, but I remember holding my oldest son for the first time in my arms. I was not nearly as holy as Zechariah to spend my first however many verses celebrating God's faithfulness before turning my attention to my son. So finally, after all these verses, Zechariah looks down at his child and describes what John was sent to do. He says this, he says in 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will be called the prophet of the Most High. He says, John, your job is to prepare the way for Christ. Your job is to prepare the people for Christ. Verse 76, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. He says, when this God visits to redeem, when this conquering king arrives, when this saving Messiah comes, John, your job is to prepare for his arrival, to prepare the people for Emmanuel, for Christ, the Messiah. He goes on and says, in addition to preparing the way for Christ, John is to proclaim salvation in Christ. It says, John, your job is to direct these people to Emmanuel, to Christ. Look at verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Do not miss this. This is an amazing verse in Zechariah's prophecy. He highlights the greatest need that the people truly have. The Israelites sitting under Roman oppression were desperate for rescue. They were desperate for freedom from their oppression. But Zechariah looks at this baby looking forward to Christ and says to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. 
He was more than a rescuer from their enemies. He was more than a rescuer from their oppression. He came to forgive their sins. This is an incredible gospel reality that we celebrate every Christmas, is it not? The fact that we don't just celebrate a baby in a manger, but we celebrate one who lived a perfect life, who died on our behalf, and who was raised again, confirming his victory over sin and death. In the baby in the manger, we celebrate the fullness of God's plan to rescue and to save a people by placing their faith in his death and resurrection on their behalf. This grand story that God was painting of creation in its perfect design, the fall of Adam and Eve as they rebelled against God, the reconciliation through the gift of his son, and the ultimate restored glory of us back to relationship with God one day. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. It's not just sentimentality. It's not just warm feelings. It's not just about family. It's about the gospel. He goes on to describe how that forgiveness will arrive. And I love the imagery here of Zechariah. He says, God's mercy comes via the sunrise. Look at verse 78 and 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. I don't know how many of you were up at 7, 7.30 this morning. As I was driving in from Eagle on 148th Street out east of town, the sun was just beginning to crest up over the hills to the, to the east. It's a gorgeous sunrise this morning. It started with a little bit of light, and then all of a sudden, the sun just began to peak over the hills as I would go one hill over the next. And it would raise and raise until it became a gleaming bright orange ball in my rearview mirror as I was headed west. This is the imagery Zechariah uses to describe God coming to rescue his people. It says, as this sunrise begins, this sunrise is the Son of God. And it gives light to those who sit in darkness. And it brings guidance to the feet of those toward peace. This sunrise brings both illumination and guidance. An illumination and awareness of our sinful state and just how dark things are. And a guidance, a direction to the only source of our rescue in him. And I can't help but think of Psalm 119 verse 105 where we read, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And the word comes like the sunrise, to bring a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. I don't know how many of you are uh, fans. I'm, I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. I read the books when I was growing up. I watched the movies as they came out in high school, which dates me a little bit. I recognize some of you are going, really? You were that young? And some of you are going, really? You were that old? <laughs> I know how this goes. Uh, but there's a great moment in the second movie. In, in the second movie, The Two Towers, where the, the people, the, the, the heroes in the story, are defending this keep, this Helm's Deep castle. And the enemies are coming. And there's a wave after wave of this onslaught. But Gandalf, the wizard, has promised that on the third day, he will come with the sunrise over the hill. And as they defend this castle, they continue to retreat back, and they continue to retreat back, and they keep defending it, defending it until all hope is lost, and they're in this final keep, and the doors are about to be broken in, and what happens? 
The sun breaks over the hill to the east, and Gandalf comes with an invading army and destroys the enemy. And that's exactly the imagery that we see here, right? These people languishing in sin, these people languishing in darkness and rebellion against God, and all of a sudden, the sunrise comes. The Messiah arrives, the Son of God comes on the scene. God with us, the conquering Davidic king, and the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And the songwriter writes, O come, O bright and morning star, and bring us comfort from afar. Dispel the shadows of the night and turn our darkness into light. All God's promises fulfilled in one baby. God's conquering king, his merciful savior arrived together in Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ, our Savior. So as we consider this season, there's a few things that I think we should remind ourselves of as we look forward to Christmas next week. The first is that we are still fundamentally awaiting people. God's people have always been awaiting people. And we are no exception. Though we look back to the reality of what Christ has done for us in his first advent... We long for the reality of the future glory of his second advent. When Christ will come in fullness as the conquering king to bring his kingdom fully into reality in this world. It's easy to think that what we need is some sort of new feeling, a fresh experience, a spiritual sensation at Christmas. But I would argue what we need most is to celebrate what we know best. What we need most is to remember who we know best. Christ came, just as God had promised, just as he had promised to save us from sin and to give us victory over the grave. That is the incredible reality we celebrate. And as believers, we look back to that reality and we look forward to the fact that he has promised to come again one day. If he was faithful in his last promises, he will be faithful to that future promise. And it was hard for the Israelites to wait, was it not? Ten years, twenty years, fifty years, a hundred years, a thousand years, and yet they waited for the Messiah. And it's hard for us to wait, too. Ten years, twenty years, fifty years, a lifetime, and we say, Christ, when are you coming back? But God promised thousands of years ago to send his son, and he was faithful to keep those promises, and that's what we remember at Christmas. And he has promised to come again one day, and we look forward to that future hope and reality. So how do we respond? I think the lyrics of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel are exactly right. Rejoice. Rejoice. Don't Lose the incredible reality of what we celebrate in Christmas just because you've gone through it before. I want to read the words of Isaiah 9 again. I know we've read some of them already in our time together, but I want you to read these words in light of what we've just talked about from Zechariah's prophecy. Think about everything that God had promised and what he fulfilled as Isaiah writes these words in chapter 9, verse 2. 
The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them a light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they, are divided, when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulders, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And the gospel writer Matthew breaks the silence in chapter 1 by saying, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the writer finishes with these words. O come, O king of nations, bind in one the hearts of all mankind. Bid all our sad divisions cease and be yourself our king of peace. Rejoice! Rejoice! Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Let's pray. Father, it is so easy to become numb to these realities, to miss the incredible gift we have in the birth of your son that we celebrate at Christmas, to miss the fact that all of us stand apart from you due to our sin in rebellion and defiance of your reign and your kingdom. But you condescended that Christ came to earth to die for us and to be raised again, defeating sin and death. Lord, these are the incredible realities that we celebrate at Christmas. It's not just about trees and lights. It's not just about songs and snow. It's not about any number of things that we could speak of. It's about your son coming to save us from our sin. You promised to visit us and to redeem us. You promised to send your conquering Davidic king. You promised to send your merciful savior. And you have done all of that. You are faithful and good so much more than we will ever know. And you have promised to return again one day. Christ will come and establish his reign on this earth. And we praise you and we wait expectantly watching for that reality. In Jesus' name, amen.